now the conclusion of the problems at the walls of Dis. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante. We have been, how long, standing here at the walls of the city of Dis, and our pilgrim has been blocked, his guide has been blocked, they've been in faith and doubt and doubt and faith, and back and forth, we've seen furies, we've heard about Medusa. My God. Been here forever. Think about Phlegus in his poor boat. How long ago that was? And that was just crossing over the swamp to get here with Filippo Argenti coming up. So we're going to finish it off. And our Pilgrim and Virgil are going to get saved right now. Inferno, Canto 9, lines 64 through 106. And now there crashed across the turbulent waves an awe-inspiring sound that made the shore of the swamp start to tremble. It was like a blast of a wind that's caused by opposing heat currents such that it strikes a forest without any resistance, splintering the branches, snapping them off, and sweeping them away, pouring forward with a lot of dust, putting the animals and shepherds to rout. He uncovered my eyes and said, Now look way out there over the ancient dross and focus in on the spot where the smoke is the most intense. As frogs before a hostile snake will scatter and flee in every direction until they're all bunched together on the land, so I saw more than a thousand spirits fleeing in front of one who strode along over the swamp of sticks with dry soles. The air was acrid all around him, and with his left hand he fanned his face, worn out, it appeared, with this sort of annoyance. I knew well he'd been sent from heaven, and I turned to my master, who made a sign that I should stay quiet, and bow down before him. How full of disdain he seemed to me. He came up to the gate, and with a little wand, opened it, as if nothing held it in place. O outcasts from heaven, O despised people, he began as he stood on the awful threshold. What makes you stick to your insolence? Why do you kick against what is willed? Its purpose can never be turned back and it can increase your pain at any time. Do you think it helps to butt your skulls against fate? Your Cerberus, as you well remember, got his chin and gullet flayed for stuff like this. Then he went back along the mucky road. Without ever so much as making a gesture toward us, he looked like a man pressed and gnawed by other cares than the ones caused by the guy in front of him. We hightailed it to the city, fortified by his holy words. We went in without the slightest battle challenge. Okay, here we are. The salvation. Virgil anticipated this a long time ago, way back in Canto 8, lines 128 through 130. Remember, Virgil said already someone is coming down the slope. Someone's making their way down through hell. And here he is, the messenger from heaven come to the gates of Dis, who opens them with his little wand and then turns around and leaves. Let's just go through this passage bit by bit. It doesn't break itself into easy sections. So let's just talk it through line by line. 
and now they're crashed across the turbulent waves. Remember, they've been standing there. They the their the furies are up on the on the walls of Dis. They've called Medusa out. They've called the big guns out. They're going to try to turn the pilgrim into stone. Uh, Virgil's whipped the pilgrim around, turned him around, put his hands over the pilgrim's eyes, told him not to look. Oh my gosh! And then all of a sudden, the poet steps out asks us to allegorize the passage, and then this happens. An awe-inspiring sound. Notice that sound breaks through here, not sight. So notice that they hear it first. This is very familiar in Inferno, just like the neutrals, just like the wind of, of the lustful. You hear it before you see it and hear the crashing waves come, an awe-inspiring sound that made the shore of the swamp start to tremble. It's like a blast of a wind. And catch this science that's caused by opposing heat currents. Very modern. It is Aristotelian, but still very modern wind caused by opposing heat currents such that it strikes a forest without any resistance, splintering the branches, snapping them off, sweeping them away, pouring forward a lot of dust, putting the animals and shepherds to rout. This is actually an overtly classical scene. In fact, what's ha going to happen in this scene is we're going to have the final Christianization of these classical scenes. I mean, is the threat here, again, I said this in the last episode of the podcast, the threat that too much classical literature without the Christianizing thematics, that it'll just paralyze the poet? Maybe. Yet the classical references here also are thick. For example, on this bit that I just read you about the waves and the sound and the wind, this is actually two similes from the Aeneid that have been fused together. There's one in book two, lines hmm, about 4, 16, 18, along in there, when the Trojans attack the Greek invaders. That's part of what this giant passage is coming from. And then there's a second scene late in the Aeneid in book 12, right around line 450, 454, right along in there, when Aeneas begins his final attack against Turnus on the Italian peninsula after Dido and after all that stuff. And it's the final battle against Turnus on the Italian peninsula. I don't want to push this too far, but essentially this giant thing about the waves and the sound and the wind and the forest and the splintering and the dust and the animals and the shepherd, it's all of the Aeneid. It's, I mean, if you take a simile from book two of the Aeneid and you fuse it to a simile from book 12 of Aeneid, you basically kind of just did the Aeneid. I know that's ridiculous. You didn't say anything about the plot, but you kind of just did this grand scope of the Aeneid right here as the gate is about to open. Our last gasp from Virgil and the Aeneid as the gate is about to open and we get this sweep of the Aeneid from book two to book 12 in nine lines of comedy. He, Virgil, uncovered my eyes. Remember, he's got his hands over the pilgrim's eyes. I don't that I've got to talk about the corporeality problem. He uncovered my eyes and said, now look way out there over the ancient dross and focus in on the spot where the smoke is the most intense. And then this happens. As frogs before a hostile snake will scatter and flee in every direction until they're all bunched together on the land. So I saw more than a thousand spirits fleeing in front of the one who strode along over the swamp of sticks with dry souls. I take it that these are the angry and the sullen 
in Styx itself. Some people take this thousand spirits to mean the demons. Remember we were told that there are more than a thousand demons up on the walls of Dis? I don't really understand how those demons would get down under the soles of this guy coming out across the swamp of sticks. So I take it that they're the sinners, but you should know that many, many people in the commentary tradition take that as the demons scattering in front of him. You should also know that this bit about frogs before a hostile snake will scatter and flee is out of Ovid. This is out of the Metamorphoses, book six, line 370 to about 380. This is a, a simile that's picked up from Ovid and put down here. So we have this big Virgilian simile from the Aeneid. Then we have this simile here. And as the frogs before a hostile snake, both of them sat down here. And the reason I say it's so Christianizing is think about what I just read you. As frogs before a hostile snake, snake. This is a messenger from heaven. This is a lot of daring do from the poet. This is kind of this is kind of just being very ballsy because you've taken this bit from Ovid, which includes a snake, which is not traditionally an image of redemption, and you you've loosened it from Ovid's Metamorphoses. You stuck it down here, and you are so confident in your ability to Christianize it that you can even take that snake imagery and set it right down here because you know set down here with the coming of this figure this unbelievable figure who's descending you know that you've christianized it i should note too that a lot of translations of this passage say that the frogs go under the water they don't in the in the florentine they go a la terra they go onto the land because any smart frog would get out of the water when a snake got into it but <laughs> the deal is that dante says they come up onto the land ovid says they go under the water and many translators apparently have been so enthralled by this reference to ovid that they've accepted ovid's idea that the frogs go under the water this is a minor little thing but i just find it fascinating and it's gotten in the english language translation history so that the frogs are suddenly diving under the water mm, nope in the text it says a la terra to the land which is dante's addition to the ovidian simile going on here as the spirits flee in front of this figure. So let's talk about this figure. He comes down through the rungs of hell. It sounds very Christ-like. It sounds like the second coming of Christ, like somebody coming down to do battle like the before the apocalypse. It has that ring to it and he's walking on water strode along over the swamp of sticks with dry souls it's sounding more christ-like all along except do remember that our pilgrim walked on water in limbo so this is the second time actually in inferno where someone's walked on water but okay Let's just say that it's got all kinds of Christological, Christ-like, Christ references, Christological references running all around it. Except then this bit, the air was acrid all around him, and with his left hand he fanned his face. Think left, sinister, bad. Think of that whole idea of, uh, you know, you, your left hand is for mm, bodily functions, and your right hand is for eating, your right hand is for touching other people. Think about that whole problem going on between left hand and right hand there. And so... 
Apparently, it stinks down here, and this figure's coming down. I love this. And he's fanning his face with his left hand, worn out, it appeared, with this sort of annoyance. He's just annoyed that he even has to be here. Why do I even have to come here? But we should know that this figure coming down, fanning the face to get rid of the annoying stink, it's a direct reference to Stasius and his Thebiad. In fact, Mercury in book two of the Thebiad looks just like this, fanning his face, getting rid of the acrid air as he comes forward, book two, lines one through five. Look it up in Stasius. It's direct reference to Mercury here. In fact, it seems like that this figure is a conflation of all kinds of figures. Let me just read on for a minute. I well knew he'd been sent from heaven. Interesting. And I turned to my master and made a sign that I should stay quiet and bow down before him. A lot of commentators have seen this as Michael, the angel who does battle. And remember, Michael's already been referenced once with Plutus. Remember, uh, Virgil condemned Plutus because Plutus was in their way before they got to the avaricious. And Virgil said, you know, Michael and his vendetta against the fallen angels and all that stuff. So a lot of commentators have seen this as Michael. You know who I see it as? I see it as Mercury Michael Christ. I see it as some fusion among all of these characters and maybe a little more. I should just stop before I get to the little more to tell you that oh, there have been many, many identifications for this messenger from heaven given over the years of commentary. Many commentators have seen him as Hercules. Some have seen him as Aeneas. Some as Moses, St. Peter. Dante's hero, Henry VII of the Holy Roman Empire. Some have seen him as a devil, believe it or not, in charge of this circle. Like there's a a demon or a devil that's in charge of this circle, and he's just annoyed, this devil, that he's got to perform some bureaucratic function. And come on, let these guys go. We're all supposed to be doing this anyway. And of course, Michael, as I've already said, and Mercury. And Mercury may be the most interesting of all of those, despite the wild Christ-like imagery behind it. Why? Because Mercury is the planet, if you just think about Mercury as the planet and the way medievals thought about astrology, Mercury is the planet that influences human eloquence. It is particularly the planet in medieval astrology associated with the good use of rhetoric and the ability to be eloquent. Mercury is a messenger, a bringer of words, which leads us to believe that this whole passage all the way back to Canto 8 and its opening has been about poetics because Mercury is traditionally seen as either the bringer of eloquence or the bringer of the messages of God. Even Augustine, St. Augustine, in the City of God, in Book 6, about line 14, along in there, in Book 6, even Augustine claims that Mercury's name, uh, Augustine tries to give an etymology for Mercury's name, and claims that it means speech running between... (laughs) Augustine's not right, but claims it means speech running between. That is, speech that runs between the gods and the humans. If all that's sitting back here, and if this is a Mercury-like figure out of Stasius with the wand, waving his hand, if that's the truth, then notice that out of this whole passage (laughs) to open the gates of this comes a figure of eloquence from heaven, which leads us to believe that this entire sequence with Virgil, with the Furies, 
all the way back to Phlegius, the whole thing has been about poetic inspiration, about how to write the comedy, about how to get it done. And here, standing at the last gasp of the Virgilian tectonic plate, here comes the bringer of eloquence. Or is it Michael? Or is it Christ? Or is it all of them? Yes, of course. This is a figure that the poet and the pilgrim both say uh, that he should stay quiet and bow down. Well, Virgil says basically makes a sign to say stay quiet and bow down. But I mean, this is a figure that deserves reverence, divine, not, how do I say this, not a classical pagan figure or an angel in disguise as Mercury, but rather a pagan god like Mercury re-Christianized as a Michael-like figure of an angel. It's some wild fusion connected all up with classical Christianizing, Christianizing, classical, that whole movement in the poem itself as we depart the Virgilian landscape and the coming of words from heaven. The poem goes on. How full of disdain he seemed to me. You know, we've seen this word before, disdain. Disdainio, we've seen it. It's what the uh, demons show on the walls of disc. If you go back to Canto 8, in exactly the same place, line 88, this is Canto 988. If you go back to Canto 888, in exactly the same place, the word disdain appears. The demons have disdain, see disdain for the pilgrim. Here, this figure seems to have disdain for just everything. Just, just done with it. He's completely over it. Disdain is a key medieval attitude. It is a hierarchical attitude out of a very hierarchical civilization. And the question in medieval society is always who can feel disdain toward whom. And here we see that the disdain is justified. Of course, with the demons, the disdain is not justified. But here, this disdain, this courtly functionality in which you go into court and the king barely looks at you. All right, so how full of disdain he seemed to me. He came up to the gate and with a little wand opened it as if nothing held it in place. He just bings it with his wand and he's out of there. And then he starts and says, oh, outcast from heaven, oh, despised people. Who's he talking to? I think he must be talking to all those demons and also the angry down in the swamp who have been scattering before him. Don't think he's talking to the Furies or Medusa. They seem to have all disappeared in front of him. He began as he stood in the awful threshold. What makes you stick to your insolence? Why do you kick against what is willed? And again, here is a Christ reference. This is basically what the figure of Christ says to Paul in the conversion sequence. When Paul is not, when St. Paul is knocked off his horse and sees the vision of Christ and has his big conversion experience, Christ apparently says to Paul, why kick against the goads? You know, the stakes that you put up to keep cattle in a pasture. I think in the King James, it's, always, it's actually translated, why do you kick against the pricks? But, you know, why do you keep kicking against these things? It's irrelevant, and you're going to convert anyway, so just do it, Paul. <laughs> Become the great saint of the church. This is a reference to that. And this figure, this is why I say it's a Mercury-Michael Christ figure, quotes Christ. Its purpose 
the figure says, can never be turned back, and it can increase your pain anytime. Do you think it helps to butt your heads against fate? You're Cerberus. Ah, classical reverence. As you well remember, got his chin and gullet flayed for stuff like this. Hercules chains the three-headed dog Cerberus. It's a story told in the Aeneid in Book 6 again. Always in Book 6. When Hercules descends into the afterlife to rescue Theseus. Theseus and a friend have come down into the afterlife to try to rescue Persephone. They have gotten down. Theseus has gotten a little tired. He sits down on a rock and his arms and legs petrify to the rock and he's stuck there. So Hercules has to come down and basically rescue him off this rock. So here we have a Hercules and a Theseus reference. This is very important because Hercules in the Middle Ages is a Christological figure, and our poet who is being rescued is being compared to Theseus. I'm just going to drop this here, that he's that our poet and our pilgrim is, are, is getting a Theseus reference. Remember Theseus. Theseus is also the one who defeats the Minotaur in the maze. So this is at the beginning of a Theseus sequence that's going to set up in the poem and it's just barely dropped because it's behind the story of Cerberus and Hercules flaying him for stuff like this for you know for trying for getting in the way of what is willed but notice that that's a classical story drop down here with this distinctly Christian figure who's quoting the line from St. Paul's conversion who's walking on water but also who has a little wand and who's waving the stink away from his face. Fascinating, impossibly complex set of problems. Then he went on back along the mucky road without ever so much as making a gesture to us. I always think right here of the line at the end of W.H. Auden's In Praise of Limestone, one of my all-time favorite poems. And at the end of Auden's In Praise of Limestone, the line is, the blessed will not care what angle they are regarded from, having nothing to hide. And Auden is talking about limestone Greco-Roman statues as the blessed, and that it doesn't matter if you're seeing them naked or their backsides because they're the blessed and they have nothing to hide. But I always think about this with the disdain in this figure, the blessed will not care, well, will not care what angle they are regarded from having nothing to hide, because here's the thing, and I've told you this once before, and now we're seeing it in action. The truth of comedy is that those who are saved, the blessed, don't give a damn about the damned. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant to them. Whatever happens down here in Inferno is irrelevant. And this figure shows that irrelevance, the disdain that, well, why are you bothering me with stuff like this? It, just do it. You know you're supposed to do it. So just do it as he turns around and strides back up hell which also sounds like Christ's descent into hell, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like the harrowing of hell, except, of course, this figure's not pulling anyone out the way Christ pulled out the figures from limbo, but this descent into hell, it sounds a little bit like that. It's so curious 
How did this figure get here? How did this figure walk all this way? It's a long way from the Empyrean all the way down to this part of Inferno. It's a long walk. And it's taken this figure apparently a long while to get here. I mean, Virgil said way back Keno 8, somebody's coming. It's taken this figure a long time to stride along and get down here. And he turns around and goes back, you know, don't bug me again. He looked like a man pressed and gnawed by other cares than the ones caused by the guy in front of him. And that's it. We hightailed it to the city, fortified by his holy words. We went in without the slightest battle challenge. You realize that this entire sequence has been a set battle piece. The entire sequence in the fifth circle of wrath has been completely about a battle sequence. We've had the transport across the moat with Phlegus and his boat. We've had someone in the moat trying to stop that boat from crossing as is often the case in moats when the soldiers would jump in and try to overturn the boats. We've had truncated negotiations in front of the gate we've had um, we've had taunting from up on the walls we've had them screaming down from the walls themselves we've had them bring out threaten to bring out their big guns that is Medusa I don't know I don't know what bring out the big rocks that they're gonna drop from the top of the walls but threaten to bring out their big guns and then we've had the invaders here our pilgrim and his guide Virgil essentially use a battling ram except there's a joke here right the battling ram is a little wand it's just this messenger's a little little wand. And I take it that that's supposed to be funny. I mean, in a big battle sequence from the Middle Ages, this would be the point, right, where the guys would line up with the giant the giant tree trunk and ram it into the walls and try to get through. Here comes this guy down, fanning the stink away from his face, and he's got this little wand. He goes, ding, and the gates open, and we're through. <laughs> hey, you got to take your humor in Dante where you can get it. And I think... I think that this is a little bit of a little bit of irony, a little bit of humor, because this thing has all been set up as a giant medieval battle sequence in front of the walls of Dis, and they're open, and they go in. What happens next? Uh, that's for the next episode of Walking with Dante. They're gonna walk into the gates of Dis, and they're gonna walk into the next circle of hell, the sixth circle of hell the heretics so come back we have got them through the gates finally we have got them through the gates and we are moving on if you want to look at this whole sequence go back remember i did an episode a while back a couple weeks ago i don't know how long ago i did an episode in which i read this entire sequence all the way across sticks up to this moment go back this would be a great time to listen to it again you'll hear the whole sweep of the passage and it'll kind of get set in your mind this is one of the most dramatic moments in all of inferno standing in front of the walls of dis and getting to them and standing in front of them go back check that out read this podcast subscribe link with me on twitter use the hashtag walking with dante follow me i'll follow you let's talk more about dante i would love that and come back next time because we're done with the walls of dis and we are walking into the world of the heretics. Thank you.